It's been calculated that it will cost a family in the UK £250,521 per child to raise them from the ages of zero to 21. Is it worth it, parents? I'd like to think you'd say yes, but I realise it probably depends on the day. Well... To be part of the church as God's people also costs something, doesn't it? We're currently going through a series called Gospel Pictures, exploring what it means for God's people to live in the world. And our passage this afternoon is 1 Peter 2. And for the churches that Peter was writing to in this letter, and as is still the case for many thousands of Christians across the world today, there is great cost to be living as God's people in this world. So this is what Peter, the Apostle Peter says to the church. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? For if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, this letter was written approximately around 65 AD at a time when the church is growing and the Roman Empire, the leading global power at the time, is starting to persecute Christians. Uh, Written most likely during the reign of the Emperor Nero, who was known to have been extremely brutal to the church. One account says that uh, he would use the burning of Christians to light up his garden parties. And so the church at the time is asking the question, as I pose to parents, is it worth it? 
And Peter writes this letter to assure and encourage them that God is still in control. And despite what they're going through, there is a better day ahead. He gives them an identity that they are a chosen people. They are exiles and foreigners in this world, but they belong. They have citizenship to a different kingdom, to a different place, to a different world, a home far more amazing. They shouldn't give up and that they should continue to have hope in the certain more beautiful future ahead of them. And he instructs them on how they should live in this world undergrowing persecution. That they should live such good lives amongst a pagan society. This is who Peter was writing to. And for us from this passage specifically, we learn not only are we to do good, but why we're called to suffer for doing good and how we're able to endure it. Because if you're a Christian, you still hold the same status as those Peter was writing to. We are still exiles and foreigners in this world with a heavenly citizenship. Firstly, have a look at verse 12. It's like, a little like Peter's tweet, summarising his overall aim of what he's about to explain. Peter refers to two dimensions when talking about our lives as exiles and foreigners in this text. There is the external that the world sees, the choices and actions we make, the outcomes we achieve, but there is also an internal dimension that he starts off with. Peter says that there is a war within ourself, within our own, with our own sin, that we have to fight daily and momentarily. The thoughts we think and the desires we have matter. They are the foundations for the decisions we make that get seen by everyone else. And verse 11 helps us understand verse 12. Essentially, the point that's being drawn here is that the world is watching. Peter says that you will be accused of doing wrong, falsely. And Jesus says that the world will hate you. Friedrich Nietzsche, a very famous atheist anti-Christian, said this, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct of revenge, for which no means are venomous enough, I call it the one immortal blemish upon the human race. Harsh words indeed. And Jesus has always been a divisive figure. Either he is the temple for life or he is the stumbling block. Who can ruin your life? And what I mean by that is that it's, it's, he's awkward, it's frustrating, it's a, an abandoned piece of history, and it causes people confusion. And they reject him. And that's why 2,000 years ago, Jesus was arrested, beaten, spat on, insulted, humiliated, and murdered. To be made into something that resembles the architect is inevitably going to be an uncomfortable experience. They rejected him, you will be rejected too. So we are to expect opposition, 
And although we may not currently go through some of the horrors that the church faces around the world today, if you truly desire to live out the Christian life in this city in the radical way that we're called to, you will face tensions. Whether that's with family, friends, uh, the workplace. But the text says that in the end, whatever happens unjustly to you, God's glory will have the final say and it will not be meaningless. Then in verse 13 to 17, Peter then expands and explains the instruction, a part of what living good lives looks like to the readers of this time. Now remember, God's people here in this text are living under an authority that is hostile and untrusting towards Christians. There are potentially lies and accusations being thrown at God's people every day, stories being manipulated in ways that make Christians sound like dangerous community. And yet, Peter says, submit to every human authority, even though they may be persecuting you. This is God's will. It's not Peter's own philosophy or a strategy in dealing with persecution, but God's direct will. Well, why are we being called to pursue goodness in this way? Well, verse 15, to silence ignorant people. Not that this will stop persecution or, or fair treatment will somehow start happening, but that you will shut those up who are prejudiced and speaking lies about God's people. So, so Peter's saying that that's why the way you live under authority is important. Because by living such good lives, those who actually do know Christians on a day-to-day basis will hopefully see that the good lives we live are because we are Christians. And those looking on will see that Christians are not the rumoured dangerous people that they've heard about. What does that mean for us? Well, it, it means it really does depend on how we live. In verse 16, Peter wants to make it very clear that although we submit to the authorities, we're not slaves to those authorities. We are free people. Our loyalty is not to the government or to men, but to God, and our ultimate purpose and future is determined by God. He is our higher authority. What this does not mean is that we can use the fact that we are truly free of human authority because we belong to God as an excuse to do things that involve disturbance and disruption in our society or cause damage, violence and harm to others, as well as doing things under the guise of submission to government that is contrary to God's will. But by submitting to authority, God is the one we are ultimately serving. Uh, Look again at verse 11 to 12. Peter encourages us that if your citizenship is of heaven, then the logical consequence is that you live in London with the attitude of immigrants who have been given the permanent right to remain. That's what it means to live as foreigners and exiles. You're not a slave to sin or your job or loneliness or your life cravings in any way, although it might feel like it. You're not. We are free to serve God. And to realize that freedom is to accept that London is not our home. And therefore, we are free to give our life away to serve the city and those around us. 
That seems uh, counterintuitive, doesn't it? Well, if London is not our home, then why don't we pull away from the city and bunker down as Christians? Well, because then we'd be behaving as runaway slaves, keeping our heads down, hoping our earthly masters won't find us and punish us. But we're not slaves. We're citizens of heaven and have no Lord but God himself. Oh, well then, why don't we just throw ourselves into the city and indulge in everything it has to offer and wait for Jesus to come back? Because that too would mean that we're behaving like slaves, submitting ourselves to sinful desires that will only seek to weaken our confidence in the gospel and steal our joy. Peter says in verse 12, live lives that so demonstrate the goodness of God that people become attracted to Jesus and are saved. Intentionally live with goodness, kindness, and integrity in our networks so that people aren't sure whether to hate us or hug us for being a Christian in their life. Well, Peter then concludes in this section in verse 17. Quite simply, verse 17 is a sum up to how we are to relate as God's people to God, the church, our neighbour and the highest human authority. The broad sweeping point I want to draw from this verse is this. Honour everyone, period. No matter who they are, God's people do not pick and choose who they show respect to, whether they deserve it or not. We show respect to everyone no matter who they are because of our love and desire to be obedient to Christ. Well, finally, in verse 18 to 21, Peter clearly spells out what our call is as God's people living in a society that does not know him. And that is to suffer for doing good. It's not just do good under unjust authority where you might have to suffer for it. Peter is saying being a child of God means you are called to it. He says, uh, to this you were called. Uh, Romans 8 refers to it as we are called to share in his suffering. And living good lives in this context is part of that. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, verse 21. We are to follow in the model that has been left to us. To follow in footsteps that have already walked this. Peter doesn't just say, Christ suffered for you, end of. No, what he does is he he paints this vivid picture of Christ's death on the cross for us. Of how he suffered and what it meant. And that's important. Verse 23, we're seeing how Jesus responded. We see who he trusted when he was suffering. And then we see why it was done and for what purpose. To save us. Verse 24, all as an example for us to reflect. We're not supposed to be rebellious. Jesus calls us to have a spirit of meekness, of compliance and submission to those we are subject to in whatever context, even if we are treated unfairly and unreasonably. Well, how does this attitude point others to God and his glory? 
I'll quote John Piper here, uh, referring to, to that passage. He says, if we triumph over our own fallen nature and live at this amazing level, meaning the nature that we'd want to retaliate, that we would, we would want to give like for like, if we triumph over our fallen nature and live at this amazing level, it is strong evidence that something more than nature, outside nature, above nature, is at work in our lives. That's how we point others to God. And so an application for us, and I don't say this with experience or easily, an application for us is to embrace suffering. Unfortunately, the last thing I want to do sometimes is to stand out. Purely because I I don't want to be awkward. That doesn't help. I end up being awkward anyway. Um, I want to fit in at work. Uh, I want to get along with my colleagues even if it means ignoring something that Jesus would want me to confront. It's personally very difficult coming to a text like this, preaching this text, and reflecting on my own life, realising how much of a coward I actually can be, and how many times I fail, even in the last two weeks. Well, thank God for his grace. Because if you, like me, have failed here, be encouraged because what's amazing about this text is the strength that it gives we saw at the beginning summary tweet from Peter in verse 12 that the aim is for God to be glorified well on the cross we see God's glory in its fullest sense being displayed God is righteous so evil has to be judged and stopped but God is also merciful and loving. And so we see simultaneously God's judgment and mercy meet together. We are evil, but that punishment went on Christ who isn't. He who committed no sin, verse 22, bore our sins, verse 24, were shown mercy so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. How do I embrace suffering? Well, part of the strength we seek to endure suffering of any kind is by beholding God's glory in its fullest expression and knowing how much he loves us, verse 25. He loves us so much more than we imagine, so much more than we love him. And verse 25 gives us the confidence that he is now sovereign and protector of our souls. Not that he will be, but Peter says... Now you have returned, it's present, because of the cross. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The identity of your soul says kingdom of heaven, which means you will never, at your most fundamental level, be a slave to anything or anyone. It means your value is not reduced to your job or your productivity. It means your worth is priceless because you have been chosen by God to be his special possession. It means there is no worldly criticism that can tarnish you and no supernatural force that can displace you from God's heart. 
Whatever you've been through, however intense or however seemingly trivial the suffering may have been, it matters to God and it has a purpose. We live as free citizens, as we touched on earlier in verse 16. And that means we can truly live astonishing lives in the areas that God has placed us. Embracing suffering and knowing that God has us. God's church is being built into a glorious building, but it requires every one of us as bricks to each choose to give away our personal freedom, that is our personal preferences and benefits, to showcase the goodness of Christ to others. I guess the question is, what does that mean for you and for me? When I end with this, this story, a true story, in the 1700s on the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies, an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave, but he's never going to talk to any one of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. As a response to the gospel need, applying the belief that they were eternally free citizens of heaven, part of the church, God's permanent special possessions, Leonard Dobar and David Nietzscheman decided to travel from Denmark to the tiny island of St. Thomas to sell themselves into slavery and to establish a church amongst the enslaved community. In 1733, they arrived and the first church on the island was established. So again, the question is, what will we choose to do with our freedom in this city? So that those who don't yet know Christ will glorify him on the day he returns. Well, let me, let me pray. Well, Father God, thank you for the hope that you give us. And forgive us when we put our confidence in other things and that we don't trust you. Thank you for the encouragement and the strength that you give us through your word. And please be with each and every one of us as we go back to the place that you have put us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.